Welcome to Headroom, where we discuss all things essential to mental health and well-being. I'm your host, Jim Owens, a licensed professional counselor at Lansing Community College. Before we begin, I'd like to emphasize that this podcast does not constitute psychotherapy. It does, however, introduce you to some phenomenal people who have incredible ideas for you and your life. Having said that, let's get into the headroom and begin today's conversation with Louise Rabideau. Welcome, Louise. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Well, I'm really excited that you're here. I appreciate you agreeing to do this. So I have kind of three parts to this podcast. The first is going to be for us to get a chance to know you a little bit. And then next, I'd like to ask you a little bit about what life was like for you when you were in college. And then finally, I'd like to ask, you know, for some ideas you have that can just help people in general with their mental health and well-being. That sound good? Sure. Okay. So let's get to know you a little bit. What does a good day look like to you? Mm, or a great day? A great day? Yeah. <laughs> well, it would definitely start with coffee. I'll tell you that. I do like to ease into the morning and not rush. But generally, a great day would be involve at least some time outside in mm, nature, mm-hmm. um, time with people that I care about. Uh, hopefully making the world a little bit better place in some way or another. And, you know, just kind of appreciating life, where I'm at in life. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that, I know you, you love the outdoors and being outdoors. Yes. Camping, biking. Yep. Various other things. And I'm sure that may fit into some of your wellness, personal wellness strategies. Yeah, and how you, how you take care of yourself. So what are some other things you're passionate or excited about? If you wanted people to know you a little bit more, mm-hmm. what would you say? Well, I'm I'm a counselor here at LCC, and I'm impassionate about my work. So mm. that's definitely something that that drives me and motivates me. Outside of work, passionate about the outdoors. You know, mm. as you mentioned, hiking, mountain biking, mm. camping, gardening. Um, you know, dining al fresco, sitting on the deck mm. or in the hammock reading. Mm-hmm. So anything outdoors I love and rejuvenates me as part of my self-care routine. Mm-hmm. Um, just passionate about being outside. Mm-hmm. You know, thank you for reminding everybody your position at the college. I should have done that, <laughs> but you are one of our counselors, just like me at LCC. And so I appreciate you. And I know you have a big passion about that. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, how did you become a counselor? What was your path toward, you know, in school? And I'll ask some questions about what life was mm-hmm. like in college, but how did you decide to even go to college? Was that just a foregone conclusion in your family or? Um, somewhat. Both of my parents uh, had degrees. Um, my mother had a bachelor's and a master's. She was a speech pathologist. And my dad, originally, he started off, he went into the army and mm-hmm. then went to college at LCC first and then MSU on the GI Bill, and he was a social worker. So both of my parents were in the helping professions. And so there was kind of an assumption that I would go to college. Um, My older sister went to college. So I think I always assumed I would go to college, Mm -hmm. and I was always interested in the helping professions. But I I really had no idea where I was going to school. Um, And I was a really good student in high school, Mm -hmm. um, got good grades, honor society, Mm -hmm. but I really, I think, was not 
emotionally ready to to think about college. And so I really dragged my feet as far as college visitations. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wasn't ready to even think about it. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going to Western because I got a substantial academic scholarship. Hey. Hey. And so it was like, that oh, works. I guess I'm going to Western. They're, mm-hmm. they're you know, paying me to come here. Mm-hmm. So Western Michigan University, it's a great university and I had a great experience there but I definitely kind of felt that I ended up there as Mm. opposed to you know chose it specifically Um, and I think probably a lot of LCC students can relate to that um, that they kind of might feel like they end up at LCC Mm. um, either because they don't have a clear career path or or um, maybe didn't get accepted to one of their other colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a great experience in the end, but it definitely was not, um, it was different than, say, my sister who went to U of M who really wanted to go to That was U her dream. M. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you had this vision, I'm going to go to college, and mm-hmm. it, it ended up choosing you a little bit more mm-hmm. than you chose it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you were accepting of that. Hey, I'll go. Yeah. And we'll see what happens. Yeah. And you knew helping professions. So what about counseling? How did you decide mm-hmm. on a major in in college? Well, I think my first and second year of college, I took a career planning class oh, that was taught by the WMU counselors, actually. Mm. And I was also looking at... Um, Uh, teaching Mm -hmm. and social work. And I realized that the part of the helping professions that I uh, was most passionate about was that one-on-one. So as opposed to a teacher in a classroom Mm -hmm. trying to help and change the world with a group of people, I was really more invested in that one-on-one relationship. And um, Western had a great social work program Mm -hmm. And I was very involved in a lot of um, advocacy and change groups and mm-hmm. and trying to make the world a better place. Through Political systemic, action groups. Yes, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I did spend a lot of time in undergraduate protesting a variety of things. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> College students should do that stuff. And yes. everyone should, you know, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I eventually, um, I worked at... A variety of jobs and most of them were the one-on-one counseling kinds of jobs I mm. was most passionate about and so after undergrad I, I worked for a while and then when I was applying to graduate schools it was really very much counseling that I wanted to focus on mm-hmm. and that and do therapy and provide that mental health support. Yeah, I think that's interesting in the in the sense that your undergrad was social work you might have thought you would have gone on for a master's mm-hmm. in social work at the time, but back then they weren't as clinically focused mm-hmm. probably as they are now because there are licensed clinical social workers who do therapy in, mm-hmm. in our city and all over. Um, but yeah, certainly counseling was the the one-on-one experience you were looking for. Mm-hmm. And, Definitely. And that's it, it's sort of in your parents' footsteps of your mom is a speech pathologist. Mm-hmm. They probably work one-on-one with people. Mm-hmm. And as your dad is a social worker, was mm-hmm. it what kind of work yeah. did he do as a social worker? Well, his degree, um, he was a social worker in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And so he worked for the state of Michigan for many years mm-hmm. um, in more of that traditional social work, mm-hmm. what we often think of as social work with people who are in poverty mm-hmm. or with in the foster care system. Yeah. And then he ended up for many years working with the prison population at Jackson Prison. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Well, a little bit more about your college life. I like to ask this question. Mm -hmm. What was something that almost stopped you from graduating Mm -hmm. from college, but 
obviously it didn't. <laughs> so give us a little yeah. drama. <laughs> a little drama. Well, I will admit my freshman year was not a great year. Mm. Um, academically, I was fine. I was in the honors college. I think I was academically prepared for college. I, you know, I, I got decent grades, mm-hmm. but emotionally I was not ready to be in college. Mm-hmm. I struggled, um, you know, making friends. My, my, I was in a long distance relationship mm-hmm. with my high school boyfriend yeah. who was in another state. And I really just, I was very focused on home and family and, and I just wasn't ready to kind of spread my wings mm-hmm. and figure out what college was all about. And I was not a very happy person. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I considered leaving Western. Yeah. I considered transferring. Um, in the end, I did meet some people that became good friends mm-hmm. um, and I stuck it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, what really derailed me was myself. Yeah. I was just kind of not in the heads, the headspace yeah. or that, you know, yeah. the headroom to, yeah. to really invest in the college experience the yeah. way that I would have liked to. Yeah. Um, so I did go back my sophomore year and I met a lot more people and got connected. Um, incidentally, a lot of those people are friends still today. Wow. I met through, was very involved in um, my church yeah. at at Western, and many of those are my friends now. Mm-hmm. Um, when I decided to go into social work, met some great people, including one of my best friends now. Mm-hmm. And so that really, I think, changed the trajectory of how I felt about um, my undergraduate experience, how I felt yeah. about Western Michigan University, how I felt about Kalamazoo. Yeah. Um, but it the first year was rocky. And I see that in a lot of my students. Um, it's people think that college is the time of your life and a mm, easy peasy right. and everyone's partying and has a great time, but it's rough, especially that first year. Yeah. No, and I think it's interesting when you left for summer break, I'm assuming you came home, kind mm-hmm. of a traditional, went away to college mm-hmm. for two semesters, came home, and then in the summer, did you kind of have to work yourself up to, because there was no promise that life was going to be better to go yeah. back for a sophomore yeah. year. I mean, you found some courage or some hope somewhere. I don't know if you can, it's not mm. that far back. Yeah. <laughs> what was? How did you do that? You know, what were you thinking that kind of, I got to go back for my sophomore mm-hmm. year? You know? Well, I think part of it was I met a good friend um, mm. and that I really connected with. Mm-hmm. And then I, so she and I decided to be roommates. So that was a good connection. And yeah. so it was an investment in that. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't have another option that seemed like a better opportunity. <laughs> like I could have come, I, you know, lived in the area. I could mm-hmm. have gone to MSU mm-hmm. or, or come here to LCC, yeah. but there was nothing else that was pulling me strongly mm-hmm. away from Western. And so I stuck it out and definitely yeah. my sophomore year was much more enjoyable yeah. um, and fulfilling. And then I made a lot of really close connections. Yeah. And really when you think about it, it is for, at least for me, but it, a lot of it comes down to those connections, those personal connections, um, both as friends, as roommates, um, but the connections within your academic program. So it started to feel more like a home. Yeah. Yeah. I remember we had a researcher from Harvard come and talk to us once here at the school a few years back, maybe 10 years ago now about, um, how important the support system is for academic success. Mm -hmm. 
and relationships with peers and relationships, frankly, with faculty and like what we have here, coaches and advisors. Mm -hmm. And he pointed to some data that said it's really not how academically prepared you are in college that will predict if you're going to be successful in college, oddly enough. Yeah. You would think, oh, the 4.0 students are going to just sail through college. And that's kind of what you're describing here is, yeah, that was me. And I did not sail. (laughs) No, it wasn't sailing. It was rough. I was was tethered to the shore. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that relationship with you had with a peer Mm -hmm. and then uh, I think in your community and then maybe I don't know if you had maybe a good example in adults on campus, if you'll call it that, Mm -hmm. because you would have been a sort of a kid. I Mm -hmm. guess not. You were an adult, Mm -hmm. 18, 19 year old. But were there any adults or did you have a mentor on campus or anything that was like a a link for you or an anchor? Uh, Well, I did have a couple instructors that I that were near and dear to my heart. And one of them was a social work instructor, Mm. Don Cooney. Mm. um, And he was he was just so passionate and he also was very politically connected and involved Mm. with the protest movement and ideological Mm -hmm. and, and that he was just an aspirational person and made me excited to be a social worker, excited to be involved and change the world Mm. and believe that you could do it. So he, yeah, he was an inspiration. Did you Mm -hmm. end up you know, taking several classes from him. I think I had three classes from yeah. him. Would he have known you? Could he have picked you out from a crowd among his students? At that time, yeah. 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 <laughs> I think that's important. It's just to highlight that that researcher really said it's important to get somebody on campus who knows you and checks in on you and you feel like you have mm-hmm. someone you can, as a confidant or a mentor, and probably his enthusiasm was infectious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I agree from my own experience working at the school here, it's it's often not that I hear from students, and maybe it's just because the population we help, but it's often not that they say college is too hard. It's too academically demanding. That's generally yeah. not what I hear as the biggest barrier. Sometimes. Yeah. And it's usually math. Sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you agree. Accounting. Yeah. It's accounting it's and math. math. Yeah, yeah. It's usually those. And it's, um, you know, some people, they, they don't have quite the skill set they'd like to have in those areas. But it's very often like the relationship stuff, the family stuff. And I'm using stuff. Um, I really mean it's serious stuff. Yeah. You know, it's the family relationship, feeling alone, isolated. And it's true when you walk around on campus, it's easy to just kind of get a view of everybody's walking around with a smile on their face, with a backpack slung over their shoulder, with purpose written into them. And it's not really the case. Mm-hmm. Exactly. People are, yeah. I think, struggling a bit more than we think. And I think at a community college, it's even more so because we don't have on-campus dormitories. We don't have um, community housing. And so I think that that really the pandemic of isolation, yeah. uh, especially in traditional college age students, it's it's profound. Yeah. And um, being a commuter campus just yeah. exacerbates that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Well, let's see, what can we offer to alleviate that a little bit? We have a student life on campus with mm-hmm. a lot of clubs, game yes. clubs and the psychology club and all kinds of ways for you to be involved uh, in sports and um, clubs and student organizations. And mm-hmm. I was a part of those when I was in college. In mm-hmm. fact, I joined the architecture club when I went to college and went to school originally to be an architect. Ah. And it was really, you know, it was fortuitous that I did that because that club, I met people. And so I had a little bit of a social network, but we also went to architectural firms every other Friday and met with architects Ah. and they'd buy pizza and pop. It was called pizza and pop with an architect. And they'd sit with us for an hour and a half and show us what their job was like and show us blueprints and talk to us about their work. And I only went to about two or three of those and I realized, oh, I do not want to be an architect. (laughs) I don't think that's exactly what I want to do. Let me start looking at other options. And it just mm-hmm. kind of opened my mind to the idea of, I think maybe 
there could be other options. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, get involved in student uh, student life on campus yeah. to the extent you can. Okay, so let's get into some ideas here okay. about what can make life better. I mean, I call this podcast Headroom in part to call attention to the fact that it seems like too few of us have sufficient room in our heads to comfortably handle one more stressor or one more crisis or one more problem. We don't have a lot of headroom. So what's an idea or a skill that you've come across that you think could improve our psychological space where we can have a little more flexibility and regulate mm-hmm. and handle things? Well, I think one of the, when it boils down to it, I, I like to think of the concept of curiosity hmm. versus judgment. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have so many thoughts in our head and um, we judge our thoughts. We judge ourselves. We Mm -hmm. judge others, our, you know, our news, our social media. There's so much judgment and labeling. And we often take those thoughts or opinions as truth Mm -hmm. or fact. And if we could shift or entertain the idea of curiosity, you know, approaching things with curiosity. Like, isn't that interesting that I did such and such or that I had that thought? Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. And just observe it and be curious about that or curious about someone else's motivation or someone else's situation or predicament. Mm -hmm. Instead of being judgmental about it, I think that gives ourselves a lot of grace, um, a lot of space to to make mistakes and to not know um, and just to be more of an observer um, mm-hmm. with curiosity as opposed to thinking we have to have an answer mm-hmm. um, that gives us, you know, some some space to just breathe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've come across this idea myself and I think like you're describing, you can use it, as we say, intrapsychically for oneself. Mm-hmm. I can kind of observe Oh, I'm feeling nervous in this moment. Yeah. Isn't that cute? I wonder yeah. you know, I wonder what that's all about. Let me feel what that feels like. Or oh, that person's supporting that political candidate. Yeah. I wonder why <laughs> they would do that. Yeah. With a really what yeah. I, I say genuine curiosity, yeah. right? Really be go ahead. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I know I ask a lot of questions. Um and even even that something in my family, like I wonder about a lot of things. And having that sense of curiosity helps us be interested in other people and ourselves, Mm -hmm. but allows other people to show us um, more of their motivations and who they are, as opposed to, you know, thinking about, oh, well, I would never do that. Mm -hmm. Or I can't understand that. Mm -hmm. It, It gives us, it gives us an opening Mm -hmm. into understanding ourselves Mm -hmm. and other people. Yeah, that, that's really, so that's kind of, why would we choose to be curious? Why, making judgments is good, isn't it? Because then I know who to avoid and I don't want to have certain experiences, right? So what's wrong with judgment? But we're quick to judge mm-hmm. and the judgment brings a kind of tone with it, which is, it just, it just isn't really flexible mm-hmm. to the, or really overlay mm-hmm. on the real world very mm-hmm. well, right? Um, yeah, yeah. When in fact, curiosity invites our, an opportunity to grow and learn. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, our thoughts lie to us, you know, especially if we struggle with mental health issues, with depression, anxiety, um, our thoughts are not, you know, absolute truths. And so if we can even think about our own thoughts with curiosity, like, well, isn't that an interesting thought? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's important. So probably you could read more people who are listening, you could look up 
this this idea of being curious about oneself and it's a mantra we have in in counseling for sure when we're training counselors to be curious because sometimes you know when you get an education you're taught this is how people are and even as we're brought up in our families we're taught this is how people are and um, those are always um, open to revision I think so what about mental health what else about mental health what else are some things that you think are essential to mental health if somebody has good mental health it's because they have Mm -hmm. what well I think connection is so important like we were talking about connection as a college student whether that's in my story or in in our students lives but you know more and more I think the pandemic showed us that the absence of connection or in-person connection was so detrimental to our overall mental health well-being. You know, so much comes down to that connection. Mm-hmm. You know, n- connecting with other humans, mm-hmm. connecting with loved ones, connecting with a p- sense of purpose, mm-hmm. connecting with a passion, a hobby, uh, an intellectual pursuit. That that connection, I think that I often realize I'm distilling things down to connection. Mm. And so when we are feeling disconnected Mm -hmm. from loved ones or support Mm -hmm. or even disconnected from our own authentic needs and wants and desires, that's when we get into more trouble and get into areas of unhealth or distress. Mm -hmm. And so I often, that's a question I ask myself, like if I'm not feeling okay or as good as I want to feel, like where am I missing connections? Mm -hmm. What connections can I I bolster to do better? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that, you know, the, as the pandemic showed us, isolation is 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 a serious issue, and we need to really foster connections where we can. So, can I push you for a little a few okay. practical things? Because okay. I hear this a lot from students uh-huh. too, and and um, there is, I think, that sense where they mm-hmm. share, like, I feel very alone. I feel like mm-hmm. I have no one to talk to, mm-hmm. um, and yet I'm also afraid to get mm-hmm. out and try to make yeah. connections. Yeah. Yeah, so oh, yeah. what do you say to people who are like, I, I agree with you, Louise, yeah. <laughs> I probably do need more people in my life. Where do I get them? <laughs> well, you know, for some people, it's it's much easier than others. If you're an extrovert, if you're social, um, if yeah. you live in an environment that you're around people, it that kind of lends itself to those connections. But if you're shy or an introvert or, you know, live in a rural area, that can be really hard. And so you can start small. You know, a connection can be with a pet. You know, it can be with um, a parent. It can be with a family member. It can be with a colleague. Um, you know, people don't become friends or close connections overnight. It takes time and it can often feel like we don't have the stamina or the energy to, to wait it out or to endure that time. Um, but you know, it's a rare find to have someone that you immediately connect with. Mm -hmm. And so often it's, it's kind of like dating. You have to keep putting yourself out there. You have to go to clubs, um, you might go to one club and really connect with people and that's your people. Um, but often you might have to go to that same club multiple times right. over and over and over. You might have to reach out to them through texting or social media in between meetings. Mm-hmm. You might have to try a variety of clubs, mm-hmm. um, you know, both social clubs, professional clubs, mm-hmm. uh, spiritual organizations. Mm-hmm. And 
and there's an element of luck mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and to it. Um, but you have to kind of put the effort into, you know, fr- relationships um, take work. And so mm-hmm. to have meaningful connections, I think it, it really is about investing and, and showing up. Yeah, one of the I, I totally agree with all that. And one of the practical things I've sort of come across with some of my students is, is they feel like they're in a class and they don't know anybody in the class because not their whole friendship came with them. All their yeah. friends came to them <laughs> with them to LCC to their classes. I always say, like, you know, you can move your seat in your classroom. If after a couple of sessions of your English class, or your psych class, you notice that those people over there, I kind of like them and they kind of like the things and they're talking about the same kinds of things I like and oh, they have a patch on their jacket that looks like a band I like or whatever, go sit by them. Yeah. You can move your chair, you know, get in proximity to people who are like you and who may like you and so on, right? Yeah, and it, but that takes risk. And it I does. think that a lot of us are risk averse. Yeah. We don't, it's scary to take a risk, even a risk as simple as moving your chair in a classroom. Because, yeah. you know, if you sit in one place the first day, that's your spot. Yeah. And so we have to be vulnerable and willing to take a risk mm-hmm. to, you know, suggest a study group mm-hmm. or, hey, let's get some coffee right. or um, ask somebody, you know, some low stakes question and see if they respond. Yeah. Those are all risky. Yeah. Um, but often we can think of what's the worst that can happen. Yeah. Um, you know, it feels like rejection if someone doesn't respond. Um, but a lot of people are also waiting for someone else to take that to make that first move. I agree. You and I both know there's other people in the classroom who wish someone would come sit by them (laughs) and make a friend because they're feeling the same way. Yes. Well, that's really useful. I appreciate you sharing that. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking with us, letting us know a little bit about who you are, where you came from and what you value and what your college experience was like. I think students can relate to that and appreciate that. And also these ideas of curiosity and, and go for connect, you know, look for where the connections are missing in your life and make some small effort in that direction. Yeah. So I really appreciate you coming on, and um, I thank you. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast. If anyone's interested in one-on-one help with their mental health or well-being, we have a counseling center on campus that currently enrolled students have access to. You can find out more at lcc.edu slash counseling. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time in the headroom. Featuring the faculty, staff, students, and others that help to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. LCC Connect, Mid-Michigan's connection to Lansing Community College. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College has been a proud collaborator of the Mason Promise Scholarship since 2016. The Mason Promise Scholarship is a community organization of volunteers that guarantees funding for two years of Lansing Community College education to selected Mason Public School students. These selected students are chosen by the Mason Public Schools at the end of the fifth grade and then become a Mason Promise Scholarship through an induction ceremony. Over the course of the next six years, these students receive mentoring and support as well as introduction to career possibilities through the Pathway Program. For more information on the Mason Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu hope. 
To assist people struggling with addiction and to reduce drug demand, the Michigan State Police has joined with numerous police departments nationwide in the ANGEL program, a pre-arrest diversion program. The ANGEL program allows someone with a drug addiction to walk into a state police post in order to seek help for their addiction without the fear of arrest or investigation. All Michigan State Police posts are currently running the ANGEL program throughout the state and also have many local and county law enforcement partnerships in this initiative. To date, the ANGEL program has helped dozens of people who have presented themselves to the MSP or to another supporting law enforcement agency to start their short or long-term medical treatment plan. If you're interested in learning more about this program, either as a recipient or as a volunteer, you can find out more by calling 517-284-3208. That's 517-284-3208. Hi, I'm John Selegi, director of the LCC Library. Join me and my co-hosts, Amy Ewald, Robin Moore, and Abby Tebow for a new show here on LCC Connect called Written in the Stars. It's all about writers, publishers, and lovers of the written word at LCC. Written in the Stars, coming soon to LCC Connect. Find updates at lccconnect.org. The Modern Warehousing Program through the Job Training Center at Lansing Community College is an industry-led program that prepares individuals for frontline material handling and supply chain logistic positions in medical centers, fulfillment centers, warehouses, and factories. Those who complete this program can earn multiple certifications. Visit lcc.edu jtctraining for more information. LCC. Connect. Voices, vibes, vision. From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. Perhaps when historians look back at the 21st century, they will take a page from past century histories and past century historians who saw one century begin on the year that ends in one, not zero. We are more accustomed to looking at the century as beginning and ending with a zero or a nine, uh, respectively. Now, the reason why I start off with this little one-minute consideration of how we mark centuries is actually because we are going to spend a bit of time considering something that happened in Lansing in the year 2001. So, on this land stories, from the outset, it looks like we are doing some really recent history. But in actuality, our land story we are going to tell today is going to span several decades, and it centers around something that happened in Lansing in the year 2001. And that something was a dedication of the Michigan Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which happened on the 11th of November of 2001. Just two months after another uh, very important event happened that didn't just impact Lansing, but impacted all of the United States. And that would be, of course, the 9-11 attacks of New York City and Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. 
perhaps because of those attacks for the remainder of 2001, and I would say for the years that followed, not a lot of necessarily big news coverage was uh, devoted to the dedication of this memorial, perhaps in a way it would have been had 9-11 not happened. And downtown Lansing has several war memorials, including to the Michigan Vietnam Veterans Monument that I'm going to talk about in more detail a little bit later on in the program here, as that is the primary focus of this 20th episode of Land Stories. But we also want to consider other war memorials in downtown Lansing, why they're there. And then, of course, one should never discuss a war without considering the people that were involved in it. And the veterans' memorials that we have here in downtown Lansing and elsewhere around Michigan are exactly that. They are memorials to the men and the women who made the ultimate sacrifice uh, to defend the United States of America. Some of the war memorials in uh, Lansing are on the Capitol lawn. Actually, many of them are. The Capitol lawn has developed over the years into a place where Michigan remembers those who were very important to us, near and dear to our hearts, and those who sacrificed in their uh, citizenry of the state of Michigan. One of those memorials uh, is actually a statue to Austin Blair, who is the Civil War governor. Uh, That would be the governor of Michigan during the American Civil War. There's a previous episode of Land Stories devoted to Austin Blair, and I would encourage you to take a minute, look it up and listen to it, but wait, of course, for this program to end uh, before you do so, and some of you have already listened to that episode, so you will know exactly who I am talking about and what I am talking about. Austin Blair, governor of Michigan during the Civil War, he is the only person that has a statue uh, dedicated to him on the Capitol lawn. Not far from Austin Blair, there are other monuments that memorialize Michigan's efforts in preserving the Union during the American Civil War. And there are monuments that memorialize other wars that Michigan men and women have fought in, including the Spanish-American War, the Filipino Insurgency, which was part of that war, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. And in fact, there's one monument on the Capitol lawn that covers all four of those wars. It's not far at all from where I sit at this very moment. I could get out of my chair and walk to it in maybe 10 minutes. And on that monument, there are uh, explanations for each of the four conflicts that are explained on it, including the Vietnam War. And for the Vietnam War, the passage that one could easily read as one was walking down Capitol Avenue and taking a pause to notice this monument. And for the Vietnam War, the explanation on that monument is brief, and it reads as follows. In June of 1950, America sent military advisors to Indochina to provide weapons and instructions. Vietnam gained independence, but was divided into North and South Vietnam. American advisors were increased in 1955 and began training South Vietnam's army. By 1961, hostile guerrilla action intensified in an all-out conflict. Once again, 372,000 Michigan citizens took up arms to preserve liberty. It is not only worth living for, but deserving of life if necessary. 
because 2,579 of Michigan's citizenry made the ultimate sacrifice, we honor 13,452 of our comrades who met the foe and were wounded in battle. A 1965 presidential order directed bombing of North Vietnam in reprisal for attacks on U.S. destroyers. Later, American Marines landed in South Vietnam, with the conflict continuing until January 27, 1973, ceasefire agreement. The last troops withdraw March 24, 1973. By defying aggression, America maintained hopes for world peace, disdaining slavery for peace with honor. Now, that memorial, again, it contains other explanations of the other wars that are memorialized through its construction and dedication and presentation. Now, however... In 2001, after a considerable effort of many years, a memorial dedicated and devoted to the Vietnam veterans from Michigan uh, was unveiled. It was designed by New York-based architect Alan Gordon. The memorial that I speak of is not far at all from the one that I just read the plaque off of. In fact, the Michigan Vietnam Veterans Memorial is near the entrance to the Michigan Halls of Justice. That would be the building that houses the Michigan Supreme Court. It is located on the west end of the Capitol Walkway, so uh, roughly about a half mile or so behind, if you're looking at the front of the Capitol building, uh, the state capitol. And the monument is an absolutely remarkable feature of the downtown Lansing architecture for really a variety of reasons, and I would like to explore some of those in here. Um, the, the most striking feature of the monument at all, is of all, are the names emblazoned on it. Um, the names of all the casualties from Michigan are listed by county in alphabetical order on 15 lighted plaques that are made of steel. And uh, there are also the names of those who were missing in action, when the monument was uh, erected. And, and MIAs, Vietnam Missing in Action, are an important part of the conflict. They're an important part of the experience of those who fought in the conflict and, of course, the family members who were never able to see their loved one uh, return or returned home. The most striking part of the memorial to me is actually a book a steel book that sits at the west end of the monument. And that steel book has in it the names of all of those who are also listed um, on the uh, plaques themselves that are part of the monument. And I really feel quite strongly about how uh, conflicts, other historical events, are uh, dedicated and memorialized in public. This has been a really major, major controversial uh, issue in the United States over the last few years. I don't think there's a single person listening to this episode uh, that would be surprised to hear me say that. One thinks back to some of the uh, very heated uh, discussions, debates, and in some cases outright violence has broken out as certain monuments are taken down in the United States. The Vietnam War Memorial must, 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 must not be lumped into those other monuments. And here's why. And those other monuments I refer to 
are the Civil War monuments, as they've been called, that have been taken down throughout various parts of the United States uh, over the last few years. And there's even been uh, monuments in Michigan, actually, that have uh, been called into question. They're related to the Civil War. And the reason why I want to state that the Vietnam, Michigan, uh, the Michigan Vietnam Veterans Memorial is different than those monuments is because it was actually built by uh, people who fought in that conflict, meaning the, the effort, the funds that were raised behind it stemmed from people that fought in that conflict and people who were directly involved in it. And while one could argue that any public monument has a political statement made to it, after all, they wouldn't be erected if they did not intend to inform the public of something, Many of the Civil War monuments that have caused most of the controversy over the last several years in the United States were actually erected after the war happened, in many cases, so long after the war happened, that they were not built by people who fought in the war, nor um, by people who were alive when the war happened. And the political purpose for erecting those monuments was really to make a statement against broader national trends that were occurring at the time related to civil rights. Historical context is very important. And the Michigan uh, Vietnam Veterans Memorial has a very different historical context than some of those other uh, monuments that I've discussed here. And, and again, I feel like I should mention that because monuments and public commemorations of events in history tend to be lumped into one giant category, and that is the category of monuments. And things that we see in public, maybe perhaps without even taking much of a notice, except on the rare occasion, and we don't think much beyond it. But each conflict, each person that is memorialized in something like a giant stone or steel edifice that is built in a city, in the case of Lansing, the capital of the state of Michigan, it has a really strong, important public element to it. And in fact, my own personal memories of the Michigan-Vietnam uh, Monument Project uh, stems from uh, my, my first time, one of my first times, uh, ever walking around downtown Lansing uh, after I started working at Lansing Community College. And this is... Uh, a few, plus a few years ago now, but not so long ago that I don't remember it. And at that time, the monument hadn't been built for very long. And I could kind of tell it by looking around it. And the first time I ever came upon the Michigan-Vietnam uh, monument project, it was a warm, warm summer afternoon. And I was on a little stroll around downtown Lansing to get a bite to eat for lunch in between classes. And having not been, uh, really, not spent much time at downtown Lansing prior to that point, I wanted to really get to know this area a bit. I, f I in fact, saw it as a great responsibility of myself, having been hired at Lansing Community College to teach history, to learn as much about the history of the area as I possibly could. Um, I thought I knew a bit about it already, but I learned that uh, one should never assume that his knowledge is anywhere near complete. And in fact, learning of the Michigan-Vietnam Veterans Memorial Project was really part of that, uh, that voyage of discovery. 
And one of the things that struck me about the first time I went to this monument was the fact that there was nobody around it at all. Even though there were a lot of people on the Capitol walkway at the time, there weren't a lot of people. In fact, there wasn't anybody standing right around the Vietnam Memorial itself. And I have taken a similar walk now um, probably hundreds of times, if not more, uh, over the many years that I've had the fortune of uh, teaching at Lansing Community College. And that monument doesn't typically have a lot of people around it. The monument itself gives a very uh, thorough but concise history of some of the main key events that happened in the conflict. And the most important part of the conflict itself, of course, is how it impacted all the lives of the people who fought in it, were injured in it, died in it, or in any other way impacted by it, by having a loved one involved in the war. And the Vietnam War itself actually is a war that started without most Americans even knowing that it had started. And by the time American involvement in Vietnam had reached to the point where there were tens and then eventually hundreds of thousands of American Armed Force personnel in Vietnam and other parts of the Southeast Asia region, there had been so many events that had already taken place leading up to that point that the war may have caught some Americans as a bit of a surprise. But uh, for those that were already involved in the conflict, uh, there was no surprise that the United States had a major military commitment to Vietnam and Southeast Asia. So a little bit of a background of the Vietnam War, I think, is definitely warranted at this point. And while we definitely want to keep our focus of this episode of Land Stories on the war memorial itself and what it means, uh, a background information towards the conflict is going to help us accomplish that goal. And the background of the Vietnam War actually goes many years back to before most Americans even knew about it. We have to go back to World War II, really. And even before that, before World War II, uh, the European nation of France had a created a colonial empire that spanned the world. And one of the colonies that France had in its possession was something they called French Indochina. It included what we would eventually call Vietnam. There were other nations in Southeast Asia that would eventually gain their independence from the French Republic. But Vietnam turns out to be the focus of American military interest after World War II ends. And the reason for that is because during World War II, many things had changed in Southeast Asia, uh, including the map, the colonial boundaries of Southeast Asia, and they were by and large colonial boundaries, had influenced the map, had influenced the political, the geographic makeup, uh, the military alliances in Southeast Asia going back decades before we even get to World War II in the 1940s. World War II disrupts all of this. And after World War II, the French make an effort to regain control over some of the colonies they had either lost control of outright during World War II or the power that the French attempted to exert or re-exert over existing uh, 
colonies had been weakened so dramatically for a variety of reasons, including World War II, that after World War II, uh, the French found themselves in a state where they either had to commit to maintaining their empire or let it go. Eventually, they tried both, and eventually, most of the former French colonies did gain their independence. The situation in Vietnam was complicated. Post-colonial conflicts usually were in this time period. We're talking the middle part of the 20th century. Right after World War II ends, United, uh, France excuse me, makes a major military investment into its Indochina colony. The United States kept a close eye on this and eventually ended up supporting the French by sending military advisors to the conflict zone. In 1954, the French fought a major battle against uh, Vietnamese forces called the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. And at that point, the French are, uh, well, they suffer a major military defeat. They lose lots of their uh, personnel on the battlefield. This happens over the spring of 1954, by and large, uh, March and April. And then in May of 1954, as a result of the fighting that had taken place up to that point, and the uh, Battle of Dan Bien Phu, the international community through the United Nations steps into the uh, situation here and attempts to mediate a uh, ceasefire wherein North and South Vietnam would be divided. So those geographic regions through that division become essentially temporary countries that are independent of one another, one is called North Vietnam, one becomes known as South Vietnam. They had longer names than that, um, and their names were based on very much their political and military ideology and their founding. But in the United States, they uh, were by and large called North Vietnam and South Vietnam. Part of the UN mandate uh, that happened in 1954 that created North and South Vietnam, again, as these intended to be temporary structures, if you will, temporary countries, um, was that there would be reunification of the two temporarily divided halves of the country at a point in the future. So that reunification then was stated as an intended goal of this temporary division. What ends up happening is that reunification doesn't happen. Instead, a civil war essentially breaks out in Vietnam between those who wanted to follow the South Vietnam uh, political structure and military forces and those who wanted to continue fighting along the forces that had been or alongside the forces that had developed during World War II to fight for Vietnamese independence. Those forces were communist, communist by declaration, communist by alliance, communist by name in some cases. That uh, created a major problem in the eyes of official Amer American policy at the time because this is the height of the Cold War, ladies and gentlemen. The Cold War would be the conflict, um, both real and, as we see with the case of Vietnam, and in some cases, act. Uh, virtual conflict, to use a modern terminology, 
uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union and American allies and Russian allies between really the end of World War II, late 1940s, and right through the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, the uh, dissolving of the Soviet Union, which happens in the early 1990s, Vietnam becomes part of the Cold War, and it becomes part of the Cold War in a big way because of the fact that North Vietnam has this history of alliance with various communist forces in Southeast Asia, including those that they themselves created. So when the United States looks at the temporary division of Vietnam in 1954, it looks at it as a Cold War fight, that you have communist infiltration, communist influence, and communist party membership, and communist armies that are uh, encompassing North Vietnam. And in South Vietnam, therefore, the United States sees an opportunity to uh, place a bulwark against what it called communist expansion throughout Asia. So that's actually how the United States ends up being involved in the Vietnam War is through that Cold War tie and through the ties with the historic alliance and interest in uh, France. So after 1954, over the next really about 10 years, the United States has a steady, but compared to what would happen after 1964, still relatively smaller scale commitment to Vietnam and to South Vietnam. And that military commitment uh, reaches all facets uh, of, of form, including sending military advisors uh, over to train South Vietnamese forces. This is the uh, condition that the United States sets itself up in as a means of supporting South Vietnam from 1954 on. Most of the fighting in Vietnam that Americans to this day and at the time considered uh, to be the Vietnam War happens after uh, a couple of incidents that occur in the Gulf of Tonkin, which is the uh, sea off the North Vietnamese coast, in August of 1964. These become known as the Gulf of Tonkin Incident or the Gulf of Tonkin Affair. And the affair is uh, really, it's fairly simple what ends up happening, although at the time it was not simple. There was a, a considerable uh, debate that took place within the American intelligence community and defense forces over what actually happened. The United States had, in the first week of August in 1964, um, patrol boats and other uh, assets committed to Operation DeSoto which was an intelligence-gathering reconnaissance operation taking place off the coast of North Vietnam. Two of the, of the ships that were involved in this operation, one of which was called the USS Maddox, the other of which was called the USS Turner Joy, reported incidents. The Maddox was engaged by North Vietnamese forces on August the 2nd of 1964. Two days later, another ship, the Turner Joy, reported also being engaged, but it wasn't. In the end, actually, the Turner Joy um, had a crew on board that opened fire against false radar noise. 
the Maddox was actually engaged, and it returned fire and ended up sustaining uh, minor damage. Actually, it wasn't really damage. The minor damage that was reported was one bullet hole that was found in the Maddox um, from fire that the ship faced from North Vietnamese forces. But as a result of the Gulf of Tonkin affair, Congress ended up passing a a, uh, resolution that gave President Lyndon Johnson and the Department of Defense a great degree of latitude in sending American forces to Vietnam. And those forces then arrived in much, much, much greater numbers than they had before, beginning in later 1964 and especially into 1965. That is where most of the men and women who ended up fighting in Vietnam came from. And the names of those who were wounded or died in the war are emblazoned along all of those steel tablets that make up part of that very moving monument. And I will conclude this episode of Land Stories with the Michigan Vietnam Monument Project mission statement. Uh, As is stated at the Michigan Vietnam Veterans Memorial. The Michigan Vietnam Monument Project is an opportunity to recognize, honor, and learn from both the Michigan residents who served and from those who, by death, missing in action, or prisoner of war, sacrificed their life in Vietnam. The monument is intended to provide a place for future generations to reflect upon America's longest and most controversial war, one that divided the nation and was fought by soldiers whose average age was 19 years. Completion of construction will continue the healing process for the Vietnam veterans, their family members, and the countless numbers of individuals and organizations who were profoundly affected by this war. The monument's dedication will provide the welcome home bypassed during the turmoil of that time. To this end, we dedicate our labors and invite the state and the nation to join this task. Michigan Vietnam Monument Commissioners, November 11th, 2001. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.